Hello and welcome to the You Know How to Live show. I am Kate Hammer and in just a moment we will have author Todd Henry here with us to chat about building processes that lead to everyday brilliance and how to learn about and leverage your unique motivation code to tap into your best work. Wherever you're listening or watching from, I'm so glad that you tuned in and are hanging out. I hope you are ready for my favorite combination of things, hopefully a little bit of entertainment, and of course, some takeaways to improve how you work and play and do all the things you do in between. Please take a moment right now to subscribe, follow, leave a comment, or give a five-star review so that we can stay connected. And with that, let's bring in Todd Henry. Todd, how's it going today? Thank you so much for being here and, and joining me on this show. I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. It's good yeah, to see you. Awesome. Yes. Okay. So I came across your books when a good friend of mine, who is also a creative professional, recommended you to me with this context. He said, I know you like to binge read authors, and I have somebody who's written a handful of books for you. And I said, all right, lay it on me. So I grabbed them all, scooped them all up, and just went to town and had an absolute blast. I love your work. Big fan. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. That means a lot. Actually, it's, you know, sometimes people will kind of dip into my books maybe later in the game, you know, like like uh, some of my later books, and they don't even realize I've been writing books for a really long time. So that's encouraging to hear that you've actually, you've actually made a deep dive into the entire uh, repertoire. So thank you. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Five books in 10 years is quite an accomplishment. Really writing pretty quickly, I would say. Uh, so most recently, I read The Motivation Code. But before we get into that one, I'd love to hear from your perspective. What is the best order to read your books? So that's a great question. Thank you for asking that. So, um, so I kind of consider the first four books to kind of be a um, sort of a, a, a box set, if you will, for creative prose, sort of mm -hmm. following them through their journey. So um, the first book, The Accidental Creative, is really about how to position yourself to have ideas when you need them most under pressure. So how do you organize your life to have ideas at a moment's notice? Because we all have to do that consistently. Um, the second book is about, okay, great. So you've got ideas, but how do you actually execute on the right ideas? How do you make sure you don't get stuck on your journey, which is the book Die Empty? And then the third book is Louder Than Words, which is about how do you then get people to actually pay attention to your work? You know, attention for your work is not a birthright. So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, at some point, if you want people to interact with what you do, you need to find a way of communicating in a way that people can, can receive it. And that's the book Louder Than Words. Mm -hmm. The fourth book, Hurting Tigers, then is about okay, all of this that we've been talking about, that's great, but how does this apply to a leadership context? Let's say you have to lead talented, creative people. What do they need from you? And how do you apply all of these other principles to help you uh, be a more effective leader and to be the leader that creative people need? So those four books kind of go together and they kind of follow a person through their journey from you know, organizing your world to doing the right work, to getting people to pay attention to your work to then, okay, now you may have to lead other people and be in the capacity of, of authority over others you know, what does that look like? So those four books kind of all go together. So I recommend reading those straight through the Axon Creative, Die Empty, Louder Than Words, and then Hurting Tigers. Um, the fifth book, as you mentioned, is The Motivation Code, which is a definite yeah. right turn for me. Uh, it's very different from the other books that I've written. Um, and it's mostly because it's based upon research that a team of PhDs has been doing for 50 years, really, um, into yeah. what, what drives us. And so uh, it's, kind of, it's a very different kind of book for me. I'm actually writing another book right now 
that is kind of back to more of the creative professional community, but um, and that will come out next year. But the motivation code was definitely kind of a right a right hand turn for me. Yes, absolutely. And I hope to ask you a little bit more. I'm not sure what you're willing to give away about what is in the works, but of course, we would love to hear what's going to be coming online soon. So one way that you have described motivational themes, of which there are 27 separated mm -hmm. into six different family groups that someone will determine about themselves when they read this book and take the quiz. You have described understanding your motivational themes like getting the combination to a padlock instead of smashing it to open the lock. Right. Yes. So I love that visual. Can your experience shape your motivational themes or does your code determine your reaction and engagement with your experiences? Yeah, this is sort of the, uh, you know, are you born with it or is it shaped in you over time question? And I think the answer is a little bit of both. Um, so just to, to back up and talk about these motivational themes and kind of where they came from, um, my my colleagues and then really their predecessors um, have been doing this research for 50 years, um, interviewing people from all walks of life, doing really in-depth biographical um, research into people, their, their moments of achievement, uh, moments of deep gratification with life and work. And they listened to how people told the stories of achievements. So they mm -hmm. analyzed over a million achievement stories over the course of the last several decades. And what they discovered is there are 27 unique ways that people describe why certain moments in their life are uniquely gratifying. And mm. those ways that they describe it are connected to what they did in the moment. So what exactly did you do in order to achieve whatever you achieved? How did it make you feel in the moment? Um, who else was involved in, in the process of, of doing it? So there were all these kinds of questions that were asked and what they discovered is that there are 27 unique ways that people describe it. And the language is eerily consistent within those 27. So you could almost take what somebody said verbatim and just plug it straight into one of those 27. And so over time, uh, my colleagues developed the motivation code assessment. We call it your motivation code, your top three to five motivational drivers or what we call your motivation code. Um, everybody has one. There are 17,550 possible combinations of top three motivations. So um, everyone is likely to be very unique in terms of how they're driven. Uh, motivation code is persistent, meaning that it tends to stick with you through easy times, through difficult times, through different seasons of your life. It tends to be something that's um, irresistible to you. So you're mm -hmm. drawn to satisfy this motivation, mo these motivational drivers uh, through any work that you do. You know, when, when, when we talk about motivation, often we talk about it as a blunt instrument, right? We tend to think people are generally motivated the same way. So um, we use two or three different methods to try to motivate people. We encourage them or we give them money or we give them flexibility or we mm -hmm. uh, give them a promotion, you know, and those tools are fine. But the reality is what those specific motivators mean to the individual is going to be very different depending on how they are innately motivated. Um, so, you know, you probably have heard, all of us have probably heard, and sorry, I'm like a wind up chatty Kathy doll, just keep going. So just cut me off at any point. But what you've probably heard um, over time, when you think about motivation, when you've heard people talk about motivation is there are two 
kind of basic types of motivation. There's extrinsic motivation, mm, yes. which are these external forces that motivate us, things like pay raises and, and promotions and things like that. Uh, and then there's intrinsic motivation. And you know the work of Dietschy and Ryan in self-determination theory said autonomy, mastery, and relatedness, or even in his book, Dan Pink called it, I think, purpose, mm. autonomy, mastery, purpose, um, are these kind of inner drivers. Well, the reality is the research shows that internal and ex intrinsic and extrinsic motivation are not discrete. They actually modify one another. So the way that I react to an extrinsic motivator is going to be very different from the way that you do. We might both be motivated by that extrinsic driver, but the reason we're motivated is going to be very different depending on what our motivational drivers are. So that's basic. That's sort of the, the basic background of these motivational drivers. Now, why it's important is because once you understand what drives you, you can explain a lot of the behavior in your life. Maybe that was a mystery to you before. You can mm. explain away that element in particular. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so for example, you know, there are areas of conflict within teams sometimes. And it's funny. I was just, I was talking with one of my, one of my business partners the other day and he said there was a, there was a conversation in his company and they were all arguing about this specific project. And he said, you realize right now you are each, mo you are arguing out of your core motivation right now. You're arguing out of your motivational drivers. You know, one person is arguing because, uh, you know, they are driven to collaborate and they didn't feel like it was enough of a team project. And another person's arguing because they see the potential in this thing. And we have to do this now because they're driven by achieved potential, you know, and I'm making that up by the way, I'm trying to generalize. So I don't give away. Yes, yes. Really but it's really interesting because, uh, once you understand what makes you tick and what makes the people around you tick, it changes how you interact with them because you can see that their behavior isn't just difficult behavior. It's that they're trying to satisfy an emotion or a, a motivation that is not being satisfied. Uh, and once you understand that, you can have a more meaningful conversation with them. Yes, absolutely. And you describe very well through each of those 27 um, exactly how to interface with someone who has those drivers. And so if you're in a setting where you are operating a team or working with a peer who's willing to go through the process of taking the test and, and determining their code, then you can break down those conversations in a very different way and get right. to the root of issues much faster. So I found that particularly compelling. I definitely had that reaction when reading of, wow, I love reading about my own, but wait, like who else right. do I want to have do this? Um, you also recommend in the book to have a peer-to-peer -peer conversation once you determine your motivational code. And that is super smart because man, oh man, do we miss what is right in front of us sometimes. So much easier to describe others than ourselves. So yeah, well, we need others to see ourselves completely. You know, um, there are a lot of people who who sort of, go into themselves to try to figure things out. And, um, and that, that can be valuable to some extent, but the reality is we need others to see our place in the world, to see how they receive us, um, what they see in us. Uh, I mean, that's a significant part of self-awareness and self-knowledge is seeing ourselves through the eyes of others. And so having those conversations about where our motivational drivers are playing out can be really, really helpful, really valuable. I mean, I'll give you an example from my life. Um, one of my top motivational drivers is meet the challenge, which means I love 
discrete, tackleable challenges. I need I, I need something to feel like a challenge to me in order to trigger my engagement. Um, if it's not challenging, it's very process oriented or something of that nature. I, I tend to check out. I'm not really all that interested. Well, a lot of life is process, right? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, it's sort of just <laughs> maintaining things. It's organizing things. So what'll happen sometimes is I will put off some of those more mundane tasks until the last minute because that will make them feel like a challenge. Now I have to do it in record time in order to get it done. Well, that means sometimes things don't get done because part of the shadow side of my motivation is that I will procrastinate until I need to, uh, until I have to do it because then it feels more like a challenge to me. Um, so what I've learned and often through other people, um, telling me, Hey, by the way, you realize that you're kind of we really need you to be more on the ball with this, right? We need you to get this to us quicker. What, yeah. I, what I figured out is that I can instill challenges in my life to help me satisfy that motivation and also stay on track with my work by establishing little mini challenges throughout the process. So I mentioned I'm writing a book right now. I just wrote a book that is twice as long as any of my books. And I did it in a third of the time because of the way the deadlines worked for this book. Wow. Um, which is crazy, crazy, crazy. I will not do it again. But the only way I got through that was by setting little mini challenges along the way. I had Monday through Friday, I worked Monday through Friday, I had Monday mm -hmm. through Friday challenges every day to write a certain number of entries for this book um, for, for over the course of three months. And I went screeching across the finish line, right? Like right on the day of my deadline, I turned it yeah. in, but, but I finished it, you know, I finished it because of those little mini challenges. So, um, that's just one example of how a knowledge of your motivational drivers can be beneficial, but B how seeing yourself through the eyes of others can help you identify ways in which maybe you're trying to satisfy those mo motivations in unhealthy ways. Hmm. Yes. So as you're going through this process of writing this book and you're creating these mini challenges for yourself, what sort of tools and habits were you putting into play to make this happen? So there are a couple, are you talking about productivity tools that I yeah. use? Yeah. Do you have systems that you use, tools that you use, apps? I do. I do. Yeah. So a um, couple of things. Number one, I'm a big, big believer in time blocking. Um, mm. You know, when you have to do deep creative work, um, you know, my friend Cal Newport talks about the importance of deep work and and making sure that you're, you're um, putting time on the calendar to do deep work, not just trying to squeeze it in. Um, so I time block. I mean, I sit down, I plan my days. I have my own little daily planning sheet that I created. I use my iPad uh, for my iPad pro for that. And I will block out my time for the day. Um, I have recurring time blocks for different kinds of functions on my calendar. Um, and so that, that's one thing is I, I believe that if something is important, especially creative work, it has to be planned. You have to put it on your calendar. You can't just, you can't just work when you feel like it. You have to work when it's time to work. And then inspiration shows up in the midst of it. You know, um, mm. Steve Pressfield talks about, you know, the importance of, turning pro, you know, amateurs work when they feel like it pros work because it's time to work. Um, and mm. so that's, that's an important, um, principle for me that, you know, every day I work and I produce regardless of whether it's good or I feel like it or not, I produce every single day. Um, I use, uh, Scrivener to write my books. Um, 
And, you know, it's a little bit like uh, that old question, what kind of pencil does Stephen King use? You know, like everybody wants to know, like what tools do people, you know, and it's like, well, you know, you could, uh, you could write a book on a legal pad with a big pen if you want, you know, um, but, but I found that Scrivener is helpful to me because I tend to write books in a nonlinear fashion. I tend to write from the inside out. So mm -hmm. Using Scrivener, I can write whatever section I want to write on any given day, and I can move those sections around later if I need to to organize them differently into chapters. And it also does a great job of tracking word count and and um, targets for projects, which is great uh, for for the writing process. Because uh, on a on a normal book, I will write no more than five hundred words a day. That's all I do. Um, and so when I get to five hundred words, if I'm in mid sentence, I stop right in the middle of the sentence um, because I know exactly where I'm going to pick up the next day, which is always the hardest part, right, is is getting started. So um, on normal books, that's what I'll do. On a book where I'm writing a book twice as long in a third of the time, I, di I didn't do that. I, I took a different approach because it was kind of a different book. So, Yeah, absolutely. And I think we are just really fascinated with these things. Like what tools do you have? What ha what what's your morning routine? What habits do you have? And you're right. They don't necessarily apply universally, but what I like about what you did is you found a tool that matches with right. how you're motivated. And that's the most important thing. You know, you you know, your tools exist to serve you. Your systems exist to serve you, not the other way around. Um, your processes exist to serve you, not the other way around. And I think sometimes people are looking for the the golden system that's going to unlock everything for them. And the reality is every system gets stale over time. Every tool grows stale over time. Hmm. Um, and you need to, that's why you need to routinely step back and reflect on what's working right now, what's not working right now, what do I need to shake up, um, what needs a refresh. Um, there are a couple of consistent practices that have been in my life for 20 years. I mean, one of them is getting up and having a, an hour of study in the morning, um, Monday through Friday, I get up, I go to my home office and I study, um, actually on the chair right behind me. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's a great way for me to stay engaged, to stay mentally active, to commune with great minds as Stephen Sample from USC called it. Um, mm -hmm. you know, it's just a great way for me to stay fresh in my, in my life and my creating and my work. Um, you can't have creative output without input. You need stimulus in order to, to produce. And so that's one way that I do that for sure. Um, and that's the, uh, been a regular practice. I have dailies that I track every day. Um, I have a list of dailies that I track on my daily planning sheet, you know, so every day I have, I think eight different things that I check off my dailies list. Um, mm -hmm. and I get them more days than not. Some days I don't do a couple of them, but, um, you know, I, I try to do them more days than not. So again, this works for me because it's um, kept me consistent. I know my tendency is to drift if I don't have guardrails. I know my tendency is toward comfort and laziness um, if I don't have disciplines in my life. And so that's why the disciplines are so important. I don't have them because I'm disciplined. I have them because I know I'm lazy at the, at the root. <laughs> Um, and if I don't have them, then I'm going to go off the rails. But the great thing is I know if I just do the things I need to do, if I hit my marks every day, I can be lazy around that all I want to, as long as I hit my marks every day. Right. Um, because I know that's, what's going to move me forward. So it's almost like earned laziness in a way. Right. Um, if I, like sure. I just got back before this interview, I got back from a long walk. I tend to do that in the middle of the day. It's one of the ways I kind of 
structure some laziness into my day is to take a long walk. But the, the reason I do that is because it gives my brain a chance to reset between my morning creative work and my afternoon, like administrative and, and, um, and like interviews and, and coaching and things like that. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. So one thing that you reveal in the book is that you don't actually love writing, right? Yeah. But that what it allows for is to connect with these points of motivation that you have. So there is something within what you're producing that allows you to get all of these things accomplished that you want to get accomplished. So can you speak a little bit more to that? Because I think, you know, oftentimes when people are, uh, whether it's in a job or in something they're pursuing as an entrepreneur, that there are, there are parts of what they need to do that they don't love. Right. So what does that look like for you? Yeah. Um, one of the worst pieces of advice ever given in the history of humanity is find, find work that you love and you'll never work a day in your life. It's terrible advice. It is awful advice. I'm sorry if if you or anybody you know says that, but it's 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 awful advice because you're going to work a lot. If you care about something, you're going to work a lot and you're going to spend a lot of your time and effort and blood, sweat, tears to to bring it to be because you're committed to an outcome that's more important than your enjoyment of the tasks. Now, that doesn't mean you can't enjoy the tasks and hopefully you enjoy some of the tasks that you do. Um, and this kind of gets back to the the... Thing I talk about often, which is the root of the word passion. Mm -hmm. The word passion in its original form comes from the word pati, which means to suffer, mm -hmm. um, or passio in, in, in Latin. Um, we tell people all the time, follow your passion, right? Mm -hmm. Follow your passion. What they hear is follow the thing you like to do, right? Follow the tasks that you enjoy. And so when somebody suddenly realizes, oh, I don't, I'm not enjoying my tasks in my job anymore. I should leave my job because I want to follow my passion. Well, no, that's not what it means. What it means is follow your suffering. That's the original meaning of the word, meaning follow the thing that you're willing to suffer for, even when it means walking through temporary suffering because the outcome matters so much to you that you're willing to walk through that temporary suffering in order to get to the outcome that matters deeply to you. So how does this apply to what we were just talking about? Mm -hmm. um, I don't enjoy writing, but I love the outcome of having written. I love the impact because by the way, one of my top motivations is also make an impact, right? It's one of my mm -hmm. top, top three. I love the impact that I get to make through my writing. That matters more to me than the temporary suffering of sitting down and going clickety-clack on the keyboard. I don't love to do that. Now, there are times when I'm in the midst of writing something that I find myself enjoying it for sure, but I don't sit around all day thinking, boy, I can't wait to sit down and write. I get, you know, and so I, I think for people who for people who think I want to be a writer because I enjoy writing, there has to be something more than the process that draws you into writing. There has to be an outcome that you're aiming for, some kind of impact that you're aiming for. Your work isn't for you. Your work is for other people. Your body of work isn't about you. It's about other people. So, you know, for me, that means walking through the temporary suffering, following my passion means the outcome that I'm trying to achieve means walking through temporary suffering sometimes in order to get to that outcome. Uh, but we don't we don't talk about that. And we don't teach that. We teach you know find something that makes you feel tingly and go do that. Well, I mean, that's fine, but that's that's called a hobby. That's not 
you know, necessarily a, a passion or an outcome that you're, that you're pursuing. So um, anyway, so that, and by the way, I, I could be accused of being a curmudgeonly old man for saying that I get that. Um, but, you know, we're, we're in a, a place where we have more tools at our disposal, more opportunities, more choices, more freedoms than we've had in the history of humanity. I mean, we're the top 0.00001% of all human beings who have ever lived in terms of opportunity and, and freedom. And, and by the way, I'm not just talking about the people who are listening to this. If you're listening to this right now or watching this, um, you know, you are in the top 0.0001% of all humans who have ever lived. But I'm talking about everybody on the planet. I mean, we're being lifted globally. We're being lifted in new ways out of poverty in ways that have never, they're unprecedented, right? So people have opportunities because of new telecommunication tools and the ubiquity and uh, expensiveness of technology and all of these things. Mm. Obviously, poverty is still an issue, right? But but globally, we're seeing people lifted out of poverty at huge in huge numbers. And so, what what's beautiful about that is more people have the opportunity to pursue things that are actually making a difference in the lives of other people, rather than just focusing on subsisting. Um, and so, when we talk about passion, mm -hmm. I encourage you to think about what is the outcome I'm committed to. What is the difference I want to make? Mm -hmm. And uh, what is it going to take for me to get to the place where I'm making that difference? Uh, so anyway, I don't mean to take us down a rabbit hole, but that's that's kind of how I, I tend to think about uh, that advice. Follow your passion. Yes. Yes. I love that. I remember this from Die Empty. You had me hooked immediately. Um, and I love that you actually speak to hobbies, too, in your books, that it can actually be a part of what edifies your work your creative pursuits outside of what you actually get paid to do. Sure. So do, you know, to that point, do you have anything right now that you're pursuing hobby wise? I do. I, I make music. Um, I was in my, I call it now my misguided twenties, but, uh, in my early twenties, right out of school, I was a musician, full-time musician for a handful of years and traveled around and played shows and did the whole thing. Um, it was a lot of fun. I, I mean, I enjoyed it. Um, it's really, really hard to make a living as a musician, especially, you know, back in the 1990s, it was like, you know, kind of, uh, maybe even more so cause we didn't have the distribution channels and all of that. But, um, but to this right. day, I still love making music as a hobby. So I write songs and record them and, the funny thing is there's so many tools now that oh, yeah. um, enable like back I do things now in an evening in my home office that I would have spent 5 grand to do in a studio 25 years ago you mm -hmm. know so it's like it's crazy what what we have at our disposal um today so there really is no excuse for anyone um but this hobby thing kind of is important I think for us to realize that you know your body of work isn't just your job. You know, your body of work encompasses more than your job and your job can never contain the sum total of your creative engagement. If you're looking for the perfect job that you can channel all of your creative energy into, you're going to be disappointed. You are because no job can meet that criteria. You need to instead build a portfolio of passions in your life. So for me, like there's not a place out there for me to make music as part of my job. It's just not what, you know, I'm like a 50 year old man, right? Nobody wants to hear a 50 year old man making music, but it's fun for yeah. me to do. <laughs> yeah. um, it's really fun for me to do. And, but at the same time, so I get to channel my creativity there, but the primary place where I focus my creative energy is on my clients, it's on my writing, on my books, on my teaching, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so it's, it's a portfolio, right. Of passions. And so, 
I think we need to also recognize, listen, you might work a job your entire life that does nothing but provide you with the resources you need to be able to pursue the thing that you really love, which might be a hobby that you never get paid for. And that's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, I think we, again, we also tell people, you know, your job has to be your identity and the sum total of what, you know, no, maybe your job is just a job. That's all it is. It just provides you with the resources you need to be able to go do the things you love. Albert Einstein was a patent clerk when he developed the, the theory of relativity, right? I mean, the mm -hmm. Wright brothers were, had a bicycle shop when they invented airplanes. You know, I mean, these are a couple, just a couple of examples of people who, we're pursuing side projects just for fun, kind of pursuing these side projects yeah. and ended up changing the world as in, in the process. Didn't intend to maybe, but they did. So, you know, I, I think we need to release the pressure valve a little bit too of like having our job be the end all be all of what we do in the world. Absolutely. You know, I talk about hobbies a lot because I think we sometimes feel like if we're going to do something, we have to be excellent at it. And hobbies is a space where that's really not true. You can do it just for the sake of the time you spend, how you enjoy it in that moment. Right. You don't need to be the world's best watercolor or you don't need right. to be, you know, recording music that could be played on the radio tomorrow. As long as you're getting something out of it, then that can really be enough. It doesn't right, need to sure. be like attached to a set of goals or whatever, or it can be like, if that's the way that you enjoy pursuing things then great, but but it can just simply be a time for you to do the thing that you want to do. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. All right. So we're going to do two quick segments. The first one is called this or that. And I'm just going to ask what you tend toward between the two options. Okay. All right. Okay. Read a book or listen to a playlist. Uh, read a book. I am who I am or I'm always evolving. I'm always evolving. Go on an adventure or stay in and relax. Stay in and relax. Rewatch favorites or search for a new show. Rewatch favorites. Ooh. The more the merrier or more fun with fewer. More fun with fewer. And here for humor or please be serious. Uh, I'd say here for humor, actually. Hey. All right. Okay. And then the second part is called rapid fire. So I'm just going to ask you some quick questions. Just give me a quick answer. Great. All right. So something you've read lately. I'm reading a book right now called How to Be Like Walt, uh, which is about Walt Disney. Um, I have behind me up over my shoulder um, a copy of the Walt Disney business strategy from 1957. Um, what? I really love the Disney business model because it all centers around the creative ideas of the studio. And I think at the heart of it, we, we all have an idea factory that we have to protect. And so um, that's there to remind me to protect the idea factory. I love that expression, protect the idea factory. You need to put that on a mug. <laughs> all right. Something you've watched lately. Well, back to our conversation about uh, rewatching favorites. I'm actually in the midst of rewatching The Sopranos again. Um, I like to go back and rewatch like classic series. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I've seen a couple of those classic series multiple times because um, I think there's something you gain from studying the greats. Um, you're studying story arc, and there's a reason why they're classics. And mm -hmm. so that's um, 
you know, that's probably why I go back and rewatch things so often is because I'm not just watching it for the sake of entertainment. I'm watching it because I'm absorbing it and trying to understand what makes it so great. Yeah. I got to follow up on this. So do you ever find as you're watching a TV series that there is something to glean that you can put into your work? Oh, for sure. Oh, all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no question. I mean, really, any, everything is fodder for your creative process. Um, you know, you could be reading something completely unrelated to the problem you're working on, and you can find a parallel that can help you delve deeper into a problem. And so, yeah, that that happens pretty frequently where I'll be watching something or you know, experiencing something that has nothing to do with my work and I'll have a sudden spark of insight. As a matter of fact, it's one of the things I do. I, I'll, I'll go for a walk and listen to unrelated podcasts when I'm working on mm -hmm. uh, book ideas. I was doing that today, um, working on an outline for another book and, um, you know, kind of had that, uh, you know, I, I look for stimulus out there. Not, I'm not taking those ideas and applying them to my work, but things that spark me to think in new ways. And often, yep. you know, that happens when watching a TV show or something of that nature. Yeah. So did I just hear this right? You're working on ideas for a seventh book? I am. Yes. Okay. I'm working on the outline right now, actually. All right. All right. Always something cooking. Okay. Well, that, that's, um, you know, again, Steve Pressfield said uh, he finished his first novel and he went to his mentor's house and knocked and ran in and like slapped the manuscript down and said, I finished my book. And uh, his, his mentor said, okay, great. Start the next one tomorrow. Right. And so I think I'm, I'm sort of in that same mindset. Like, if you're going to be a writer, you write, that's what you do. And so, mm. you know, the moment I turned in this manuscript, this last manuscript last week, mm -hmm. um, I took a couple of days off and then I you know, started on the next book because I feel like that's what writers do. Um, you don't have the luxury of sitting around and waiting to be inspired. You have to just kind of keep plowing forward. So. Interesting way of thinking of it. And I like your narrative too, about when we are consuming it's a it's a perception thing. We can think about it like we are just getting the entertainment or we can think about it like we are collecting potential inspiration. Right, that's right. Project. I love that. Okay. What is a favorite thing for you right now? Could be a product, an app, a tool, just something that you've come across that you find yourself letting your friends know, "Oh, you got to try this." Hmm. That's a great question. Uh, we just discovered Coke Zero with coffee, <laughs> which is a new product. <laughs> There's a Coke Coke Zero vanilla with coffee. Um, so that's that's a new thing we just discovered, and uh, it's kind of hard to get right now. But that's one thing I would say. Um, I mean, the the I sing the praises of the Apple Watch all the time. It's changed my game in terms yes. of fitness, and yeah, in terms of fitness <laughs> and. Um, uh, you know, just the ability to go out and like be, be without my phone and kind of still be connected to reality, but without the, having that appendage of the the cell phone with you all the time. Um, so yeah, so that's probably my, that's probably my most used tool actually is my Apple watch. Yes. Okay. Then I have to ask you when you do these afternoon walks, do you track them on your watch? Oh yeah, for sure. I track everything. As a matter of fact, it drives my family crazy because we'll be, you know, like walking around, like we'll, be, we'll go to the mall or something. We're like, hold on, let me, I want to track. I want to get this. I want to track this, uh, these steps, right? Uh, I want to make sure I track it as a workout or whatever, just so I get, I can sort of more easily access it later. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. What is one thing that your readers and listeners would be surprised to learn about you? Uh, hmm. 
Well, I mentioned earlier that I, I was a musician back in my 20s. Um, yeah. And uh, the thing that I often don't talk about is I was actually a country musician. I sang um, sort of West Coast Bakersfield, kind of like rockabilly country music. Uh Um, and we opened shows for the Dixie Chicks and Toby Keith and uh, Kenny Chesney and, um, played some big festivals in front of, you know, tens of thousands of people. And like, so got to play some really, really fun, big shows and also played some like really like tiny little dive bars, but, um, got to do some really fun, really fun work. So, um, that would probably be surprising to a lot of people. Um, especially in my industry, like, cause there's sort of this weird kind of, um, stereotyping of like country music, but the, the kind of stuff that we played was what's kind of termed Bakersfield country. So it's sort of like, uh, it's kind of like hipster honky tonk is kind of what we were playing, which is, wow. kind of fun. yeah, so. that's quite a line there. Yeah. That would be interesting. Um, I can imagine you as yourself now tapping on like 22 year old Todd's shoulder, you know, behind stage or whatever, just saying, guess what? This is where we're headed, buddy. Right. Well, the fun, the funny thing <laughs> we is, ever know. <laughs> yeah. The funny thing is like, you know, the difference of, you know, being on stage in front of people in a, at the time, smoky, you know, club, and you know playing music for people and stuff like that and now it's like i get on airplanes and fly to cities and speak in theaters and and large venues but it's like a totally different vibe right like i it's it's so much easier i'm not you know um you know i'm not going down the road with six sweaty guys sweaty smelly guys you know in a in a a, a metal tube. Um, but I just kind of get on an airplane. I go, so it's, it's, it's funny because I'm still doing kind of the same thing. Like I'm, I'm in front of people, I'm entertaining them. I'm teaching them. I'm sort of like, um, capturing their attention, but just doing it through a different medium. Yeah. Yeah. This resonates a ton for me. I was a music industry minor in college and I used to play too. It, it is a similar feeling and it's funny how these parts of ourselves that, um, that evolve into something else that comes from the same place. So, right. sure. uh, yeah. So as you had described as a callback back to the beginning of the interview, you know, we talked about how, as you think of your stories, um, of success, things that you've overcome or accomplished when you are taking the quiz for your motivational code, um, you realize how, there are these threads that reoccur. Like the motivation is the same. The activities may change or evolve, but the motivation is the same. And I certainly noticed that for myself when I took it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, Todd, thank you again so much for being here. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. You heard me mention to Todd today that I have read and loved all five of his books, including the one we talked about most today, The Motivation Code. With his sixth book coming out next year, now is a great time to swing by toddhenry.com to choose a book and catch up on Todd's podcast, The Accidental Creative. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed your time with us today, please share the episode with a friend, then subscribe, follow, leave a comment, or give a five-star review. Season one of the show will include more chats with top authors, experts, and influential personalities. We will be serving up simplified applied psychology, habit theory, and quality of life tips and tricks that you can put into action right away. Until next week, I'm Kate Hammer, and you know how to live.